Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I am your host, Tyler. And I'm back today to answer another batch of your most pressing Georgia sports questions. I know I told you earlier in the week that Curtis would be back on here with me today, and that was the plan, but he just got whisked away on a surprise Memorial Day slash congrats you graduated law school vacation by his girlfriend. So he is actually not in town right now, and I know we could get him here on Zoom or whatever, but... Let's let the man enjoy his vacation. He's worked really hard for the past three years, so we're just going to let him enjoy this time. But y'all know, I'm not going to let you guys down. I'm here. I'm ready to go, and we're going to answer some Georgia football, baseball, whatever questions we got from you guys. We're going to answer them here on the show today, leading into a nice long Memorial Day weekend. But before we get to those questions, I do just want to put this out there. With this being another mailbag episode itself, I think it's a great time to remind you guys to not be a stranger. One of the most rewarding parts of doing this podcast for me is getting to interact with all of you other diehard dogs out there. And one of the primary things we want this podcast to be is a place where you can have your voice heard. We work really hard to make that happen. It's important to us. We really do. We pride ourselves on this show being of, for, and by the people, man. So what I'm saying is keep those mailbag questions coming. We know that this is a downtime for most of the country when it comes to college football. I mean, Curtis himself is out there on vacation right now. This is the the calm before the storm, if you will. But if you listen to this podcast, if you're that type of fan, We know that's not the case for you. We know that you are the real deal, the real authentic diehards, not the pretenders. And for fans like you, Georgia football, college football, it never sleeps. It never stops. So yeah, we encourage you to keep those questions coming. I don't care if it's Memorial Day. I don't care if it's the dog days of summer. I don't care. We want this to be an open forum for you guys to have your voice heard, to have someone answer your questions in an in-depth fashion, and just in general to provide the kind of sports talk that you want. Because that's really why we started this podcast was so seven, eight years, 2015, so seven, eight, I don't know, how many years ago is that? 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, eight years ago. We're going into our eighth football season. It's been a minute, man. And I know I've said this before, but we've got a lot of new listeners over the years, even the past couple months. And for those of you who have not heard it, the reason we started this podcast all those years ago is I was just tired of not having any kind of sports talk, any kind of Georgia football talk for fans like me, for people that cared as much as I did and were as invested as I was. I just felt like everything was geared toward the casual fan, trying to reach as wide of an audience as they could. And that's great for the people who were casual fans, but for people like you and me, that is mind-numbingly frustrating. So our solution was to just start a podcast of our own and try to fill that void. And yeah, we just love talking Georgia sports and college sports. That's what we're passionate about. And we love getting on here and just talking about it, discussing it. But more than that, 
we wanted to make sure that people like us actually had a podcast that was designed for them, where they could come and get content that was at their level. That's really what this podcast was about at the beginning, and that's what it continues to be about today. That's, that's what our goal is. So again, moral of the story, don't be a stranger. This podcast is for you guys. If you got anything that you want us to talk about, anything you want us to discuss, any questions, even show ideas, that's fine. We want to make this, this podcast for you guys. Let us know. Don't be a stranger. And with that, let's go ahead and dive into these questions. I'm actually going to go with a couple of big picture questions today. So we're not going to answer like eight, nine, ten questions like we do on some of these episodes. We're going to only have like you know four or five questions today because I think these questions kind of lend themselves to more in-depth answers. I'm kind of just going down the list and I saw some questions that kind of work together, I felt like. So we're going to throw these out there at you guys today. But again, keep them coming. If you got questions, I promise you, we will get to them. And our question of the day, our big picture question, our biggest picture question of the day is a question from Seth. Thank you for this question, Seth. He asked, with the news this week that the SEC has narrowed its future football scheduling format down to two options, which option do you prefer slash which option do you think would be in the best interest of UGA? Is this a two-part question? I think it just depends on how you read it. I think it's like a 1.5-part question. Which option do I prefer and which option I think is in the best interest of UGA? Honestly, that's one the same to me because my preferences generally tend to center around what's best for Georgia most of the time. And if you guys have missed this, I'm sure most of you saw this. Again, if you listen to this podcast, you're diehard. You know what's going on. But just in case you missed this, you've been busy this week. I get that. It happens. I think it was Pete Thamel from ESPN, who's now working for ESPN. I think he was most recently from Yahoo. But uh, one of the, the more prominent college football writers out there, he reported earlier this week, maybe yesterday, maybe Monday. I can't remember. Sometime this week. But what he reported was that number one, the SEC, this was like the the headline, the SEC is considering its own college football playoff, like an SEC exclusive playoff where it's just SEC teams. But kind of buried beneath that, which I think is more relevant because I think it's in the more immediate future, was that the SEC has narrowed it down to two future possible scheduling formats once the conference expands to 16 with Texas and Oklahoma join, which is increasingly looking like it's going to be probably 2024. I know they had originally discussed and the report was like upwards near 40 different options. And now apparently, according to Pete Thamel, they have narrowed it down to two options. And those two options will be discussed heavily at the SEC spring meetings in Destin. I think next weekend is when that's being held. And if you haven't seen this, the two options that they are looking at from a scheduling standpoint are... A, a 7-1 format, and B, a 6-3 format. So what I mean by 7-1 and 6-3, 7-1 would be each team has one permanent rival they play every single year, and then you rotate playing seven other SEC teams every year. So if you do the math there, that means you would play every SEC team every other year, at least every other year, and you would play a home-and-home home with them over a four-year span, which beats what we've got now where that home-and-home home occurs over a 12-year span. Now, the other option was a nine-game conference schedule, which would be a 6-3 format where you have three permanent opponents that you play every single year, and then you rotate among the other six teams. You play the other six teams every other year. And again, if you do the math, it works out the same way as the 7-1 format option, where you would play every team at least once every other year, and that means you would play them home and home in a four-year span, which again is far superior, in my estimation, to the current model where that home and home happens once every 12 years. So going back to the original question, which option do I prefer slash which option do I think would be in the best interest of UGA? I don't think either option is perfect, and and that's something we have to come to terms with, guys. I know everyone's looking for the perfect option, the the silver bullet, but I don't think that exists. I think there are too many differences within the SEC. Look, we all have a lot of things in common here in the Southeast. Our fan bases all care about college football. It's, It's important. It just means more, right? But different programs are in different places. You know, what's good for the University of Georgia 
and what our needs are might be different from what Missouri's needs are and what's good for Missouri. We're just in different places. We're different programs. We have different needs. We have an out-of-conference in-state rival we play every year. We are a contender for a national title year in, year out, where Missouri probably won't ever be a true contender for a national title. I guess you never say never, but highly unlikely. So there are differences and there are disagreements within the conference and it's just really hard to find that that magic answer that everyone is in favor of. So I think that's an illusion. You just have to embrace that and we have to try to build some sort of consensus here. But saying that, I, I think I favor the 6-3 option. I prefer that format. Now it's not perfect, but I do prefer, and here's the primary reason why. I think rivalries matter. They are the fabric of college football. You know, people talk about opposing expanding the college football playoffs to 12 teams because they want to preserve the magic, the power, the majesty of the college football regular season, which I do agree is the greatest regular season in all of sports. I truly 100% agree with that. I just happen to think you can make the postseason better without really detracting from the regular season. I think that's where I differ with some people out there, but we're not going to talk about that right now. We're not going down that rabbit hole. We're going to focus on the scheduling format. But the point remains, I do think the college football regular season is important. I think it's the best in sports, and I think it should be protected. And I'm concerned that if you go with a 7-1 model where you're only playing one permanent rival every year, that you are going to lose some of that fabric of college football. You're going to lose those rivalries. And we've seen that happen to a degree with with college football expansion and and how things have happened and realignment. You know, BYU and Utah for a while, they weren't playing necessarily every single year. The backyard brawl is coming back this year with Pitt and West Virginia, but it has been gone for a while since West Virginia went to the Big 12. Missouri and Kansas have not been playing in football or basketball before this past year in basketball. And that's a, I mean, that might not matter to you guys, but that's a big traditional rivalry for those two programs. Texas and Texas A&M, since A&M left and went to the SEC, they have not played. That's been well documented. So I don't think that's good for college football. I don't. I think those rivalries need to be played. I mean, think about Georgia. Think about us specifically. We have a ton of rivals, man. Like it depends on where you live geographically as to who you think our biggest rival is and who you hate the most. It could be Florida, it could be Auburn, it could be South Carolina, it could be Tennessee. It could be any number of teams. It could even be Georgia Tech, right? And I don't think that college football is a better product if we are not playing all of those teams on an annual basis. How is the regular season better if those rivalries are not being played? Because for a lot of programs out there, those rivalry games, that is the season. There are many teams out there, I mentioned Missouri earlier, that go into every season realistically knowing that they are not going to contend for a national title. And, and that's most teams, honestly. You can, Let me just throw out a couple teams. Say Missouri, I would say Iowa's not going to win a national title. Washington State's not going to win a national title. Those teams aren't realistically going to win national titles, but those fans are still invested. Heck, I would even say like Mississippi State is not realistically ever going to win national title in college football. But their fans still care. Their fans are still invested. Why? Because they want to win those rivalry games. They want to have bragging rights. And if you take that away from people, I think you take a big part of college football away. So that's something that I would really be hesitant to go towards if you're not going to be able to play all your... I know you still play them. If you don't play them as regularly as you do now, I don't think that's good for college football. I really, really don't. So for that reason, I do lean towards the 6-3 model. Now, I, like I said earlier, I don't think this is a perfect model, primarily because I think it potentially limits your opportunities as a program to schedule big-time non-conference matchups, which I'm a major proponent of. I want to see us play teams like Notre Dame and Ohio State and Florida State and Michigan and Washington and Oregon. I want to see us play those teams. Clemson, I want to see us play those teams. I love that. I want to go to their campuses. I don't like this playing at a neutral site deal. I don't like those neutral site venues. I want to actually play college football on college football campuses because I think that's kind of what the point is, but that's neither here nor there. Again, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole either. I like those big time matchups. And if you go to a 6-3 model where you have nine conference games, 
that potentially limits your opportunities and your willingness to do those things. Because if you're Georgia, if you're asking what's in the best interest of Georgia, you also have to remember we have Georgia Tech that we play as an annual non-conference in-state rival. We play them every single year. Now, I've talked before about why maybe we should consider getting rid of Tech, but you know, I'm kind of backing off that. I still love beating Tech. I hate Tech. I know they're irrelevant. I get that. I understand it. But I hate them because, you know, growing up the one year every oh, I don't know what, eight, nine, 10 years, every now and then when they beat us, they never let you hear the end of it. They think that they have won the world. It is more than their Super Bowl when that happens. And it just gets under my skin because they're not on our level and it should never happen. So I do have a very healthy hate for Georgia Tech. I truly do. And I, I still like beating them. I like beating them badly. I know it might not be competitive, but there's still a big part of me that enjoys that. But regardless, it's not going away. I, I don't see that happening. So what we would have is nine conference games, and then you play Tech every year, which leaves you two spots. You have two slots to fit other games in there. Now, I will say Kirby has shown a willingness to play an additional non-conference game there in addition to having Tech and having, uh, what, 11 Power 5 opponents. Because in the future, you know, there's a couple of times you know, the next 10 years or so where we have three power five non-conference opponents. So we've shown a willingness to be okay doing that. What I'm saying is I just don't think it's going to happen as often as it otherwise would if we have nine conference games we have to play. And I get like having it, I have for a while been a proponent of a ninth conference game because I thought it was a way to kind of get rid of those baby seal games. I think maybe one of those games a year is fine. I'm okay with that. But like, we don't need to be playing Kent State and Charleston Southern in the same year. Like, what does that do for the the ticket buying fan? What does that do for us that actually care about this? Like, we don't want to see those games. I want to see more competitive games. I get why we do it. I understand all the ins and outs of that. But as a fan, I'm selfish and I just don't want to see those games. So I've always thought nine conference games would be kind of great because you'd have a more competitive matchup. You need to play more of the the teams in the SEC on a more regular basis. But there is a downside. Like I said, you just kind of limit some of those bigger non-conference matchups if you have been trying to make those things happen. Where a 6-3 model really made sense was if we actually did end up going to that 12-team playoff model because it gives you more wiggle room to challenge yourself and drop a game here or there and still get in the playoff. You know, if you're Georgia and you have in a couple years down the road, what do we have, like Oklahoma, Florida State, and Tech in the same year, then maybe Florida State, Clemson, and Tech in the same year, something like that. We have three non-conference Power 5 matchups on your schedule. Well, we went out and did that because we thought that we were going to a 12-team playoff. That was the general consensus within the league, and that wasn't that didn't become common knowledge until really this time last year. But coaches, people that are in the know in the SEC, they kind of knew that was coming down the pipe. They go to these meetings, they talk with the SEC office, with the commissioner, all those things, and so we knew that was coming. At least we thought that was coming until it got derailed, you know, not that long ago. But we thought that was coming, so we were like, okay, look, it's okay if we beef up our schedule, and let's say we happen to lose two games because we'll still be able to find our way in because there's 12 teams in the playoff. We have a tough schedule. The committee will respect that. We can still find our way in the playoffs, and, and we can still make a run. But if you have a four-team playoff, the committee has shown no willingness whatsoever to consider you if you have two losses on your schedule. Even if you challenge yourself at a conference, they don't give you. They really don't give you points for that. It really does you no benefit to schedule those teams unless you win them. Like, or if you lose one game. Like if we would have scheduled Clemson last year and Clemson ended up being really, really good, like Clemson of old, not what they ended up being last year, and we lost that game, and then we went on to run the table after that, we could still gotten in because Clemson would have been seen as a really good team. That's one loss. But let's say that we lost to Clemson and then we screwed up and we lost, I don't know, on the road to to Tennessee or something. But we still end up winning the SEC East and we go to the SEC Championship game. Well, then all of a sudden, now you have two losses. Or let's say that you lose to Clemson and we run the table and we go to the SEC Championship game and you lose to Alabama. Probably don't get in, right? That's two losses. We've seen that story before. You probably don't get don't get in. So for that reason, I am still at least a little hesitant to go to a nine-game conference schedule. Again, it's not a perfect format, but I do think it is superior to the 7-1 option because it preserves more of those rivalries. It might not preserve all of them. You only get three permanent rivals, but it preserves enough of them. Who would we play? We play Florida. We play Auburn, probably South Carolina. I would rather it be Tennessee, but it'll probably be South Carolina, Tennessee. It'll probably be Vanderbilt, Kentucky, and Alabama if I had to guess, but more of those rivalries would be protected and preserved. And I do, again, think that is very, very important. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, moving along here, we've got another good question from our good friend Cliff who's asking about Arch Manning, which I know he's on the mind of a lot of you guys because we do get a fair number of questions about Arch Manning. And Cliff asks, what is your impression of Arch Manning's upcoming official visits to Georgia, Bama, and Texas? Georgia won the first visit and succeeded. What are your thoughts? So if you haven't seen this, and again, I'm sure most of you have seen this, but if you have not seen this yet, Arch Manning is not waiting until the season to take his official visits. The NCAA changed the rules a couple years ago. Really, it was to help out the teams that were located up north because if you only do official visits during the season, most of the time when the recruits would come to their campuses, it was really cold and they felt that was unfair. So now they've opened up the summer and, and kids can take visits in the summer. And you're seeing that each and every year happen with more and more frequency. Arch Manning is one of those guys who will be taking all these official visits this summer. He's coming to Georgia, not this weekend, but next weekend for the first visit. He'll be going to Bama the following weekend, and he'll wrap things up the next weekend in Austin with the Texas Longhorns. And I want to approach this question first by addressing what Cliff said about us wanting the first visit and succeeding in getting that, because I think that's, that's interesting, right? Because traditionally, for a long time, the prevailing notion was that you wanted to get the last visit. You wanted to have the final word. You didn't want to have anyone else get into his ear after you made your pitch, right? That was the That's the traditional thought process when it comes to recruiting. But Kirby has increasingly started to move away from that, especially when it comes to these official visits. And he, he's shown a, a propensity to want to get these guys on their first visit, which I think clearly the, the goal there is to set the standard and to give all the other programs something to live up to and create a scenario where the recruit, in this case, Arch Manning, is comparing every other program to Georgia. And I, I think that there's some value in that. It seems to have worked very well for Kirby because we continue to recruit at a very high level. So yes, you're right, Cliff. Allegedly, we won the first visit and we were successful in getting that first visit. We'll see how that plays out. Now, in terms of Archman, I know this is not what Cliff directly asked, but we do get a lot of questions about this as well. How do I feel about our chances landing Arch Manning? Well, there was some news earlier this week that certainly made me feel better about it. Honestly, for a while, most reports out there that I that I trust have said it's really down to Georgia and Texas, but you can never count Bama out. But now I'm kind of counting Bama out because earlier this week, they accepted a commitment from a four-star top 100 quarterback in the same class, a guy named Eli Holstein. And why that's important, as far as I'm concerned, is I don't think Alabama would have taken his commitment if Arch Manning was still a legitimate option for them. What? And this is me totally reading between the, the lines here. I, I don't have any hard information on this. This is just coming from a guy who follows recruiting very closely and has done so for 15 or so years now. And in scenarios like this, where a team takes a player at the same position who is not rated as highly, it is not as highly thought of. And look, Holstein's a good quarterback. He is highly thought of. He's a top 100 guy. He's a four-star prospect. He's no scrub, none whatsoever, but he's not as highly regarded as a guy like Arch Manning. Now, maybe Alabama just did their evaluation and they think these guys are very similar in their skill sets and there's not much of a gap between them. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But what I would 
project is happening here, what, I, what I'm going to suggest is that Alabama has gotten either word from the Manning family or they're reading between the lines and they're seeing that they're not really a major player in the Arch Manning sweepstakes. That's really down to Georgia and Texas. So if that's the case, we're not going to wait on him. We're going to go ahead and take this commitment from this other guy before he goes and commits somewhere else. Because what if we don't land Arch Manning? And Holstein, he doesn't want to wait around for Arch Manning. He goes and commits somewhere else. And Alabama's left holding the back. They don't want that scenario to play out. So if they don't feel great about Arch Manning, let's go ahead and take this one we got in the bag here and feel good about that. That's how I'm reading this situation. I could be totally off base there. I don't have any hard information, but again, as someone who follows this closely, I've seen many a scenario like that play out, and I think that's what you're seeing here. So if you're asking me, I'm not the recruiting expert. I don't call these guys, but I follow it. I read reports, I read between the lines. If you're asking me, my take is that it's down to Georgia and Texas. So that, in my opinion, gives us at least a 50-50 shot. Now, I am a Georgia guy. I don't try to hide that. I, I wear that badge proudly. So maybe there's some bias in, in me saying that I do think, reading between the lines, reading reports, that we have a slight lead going into these official visits. It's certainly not a done deal. I feel very good about where we are. Arch Manning himself has said openly that Athens is the best college town that he has visited. I have read reports from very reputable people like Steve Wiltfong from 247 Sports, who is about as good as it gets as a national recruiting writer, that... The Manning family really wants Arch to have a true college experience, and they feel like Athens is the best place for him to get that. Now, he's never really going to have a true college experience because he's going to be the quarterback at a major university, at at a national title contending university. He's a Manning. He's Peyton Manning's nephew. I mean, he's never going to get a college experience like I had, where I'm just like this anonymous dude that no one cares about. But he can still have more of a regular college experience, living a regular college life in Athens than he could in Austin, Texas. And I I told you guys a couple months ago, like three months ago, I ran a marathon in Austin. And I shared my review of Austin with you guys when I got back later that week. I think it was that same week. And I thought Austin was fantastic. I thought it was a really great place. I, I enjoyed myself, had a good time. I had always wanted to go to Austin, had never been there. I didn't really... I had high expectations for it, but I didn't exactly know what to expect, what it would be like. I know it has been growing all the Silicon Valley money coming in there. And when I got there, I was very surprised. It was not a college town. It's just not. It is simply not a college town. It's not quite a top 10 city in population in the United States, but it is getting there. It's moving up the charts. It felt way more like Nashville to me than it did to Athens or Knoxville or Lexington, Kentucky. It just didn't have the college town vibe whatsoever. It had a good vibe, but not a college town vibe. And I'm not saying you can't have a good time there if you're a college student. You would have a hell of a time if you're a college student, whether it's Rainy Street, Sixth Street, whatever. You're going to have a great time. There's a lot of great bars, but it's just not a college town. It's not a true college experience based off what I saw there. Now, I know that's only one time, but it just it just wasn't. Guys, I ran a marathon there. I ran all around the town. It just It's not a college town. It's just not. And I do think that's something that matters to the Mannings because, I mean, Arch himself has has made those comments. Is it the be-all, end-all? Is it going to be the deciding factor? No, probably not. I mean, Steve Sarkeesian, as a, as a quarterback guy and an offensive guru, at least that's how he presents himself, who's put multiple quarterbacks in the league in the first round, has had a lot of success offensively, won national titles as an offensive coordinator. I think the, Arch, I think the Mannings and Arch himself feel like he'd, he'd be in good hands uh, in terms of development standpoint with a guy like Steve Sarkeesian. But I also know that they really like Todd Munkin. I think that there's a, a strong likelihood that Todd Munkin's going to get locked up here with a nice, long, fat deal. Kirby Smart's new big deal is going to be announced here in short order. And I think that's going to give them some security in who is going to be here and uh, and the development of of Arch in Athens, because I think very highly of Todd Munkin. At least that's what I've been told. I also have a pretty good authority that Buster Faulkner, who's a support staff, an offensive support staff guy, who we've talked about before on this show, has also been a player behind the scenes with the Manning recruitment. They're very high on him. They have a lot of trust in him and helping Arch develop as a quarterback as well. So I feel really good about where we are. It's certainly not a done deal. Texas has a lot to offer, but I think we are in as good a shape as you would expect to be in at this point. I'm certainly more confident now that I think Bama's out of it because you, even though I never felt Bama was like the true player, but you can never really count them out because it's Bama, right? And just, I mean, it's just playing the odds. 
going up against really one other team as opposed to two other teams, you just have better odds. You have a better chance. So I like where we are. We'll see how it plays out, but I think this is going to go down here the next month or so. I don't think it'll go too much longer. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to our next question. This one is from Kevin. Thank you for the question, Kevin. And this might actually be our only true on-field type question today, which that hurts my heart a little bit because you guys know that's that's where my heart truly lies, the X's and O's, the on-field stuff. But we do have some big picture questions we want to get to today. But I, I do like this question. He asks, which second-year player will make the biggest jump from year one to year two this season? Now, when I initially saw this question, I had to admit I read it really fast and I read it one way. And now that I read it again, it's not asking what I thought it was asking. I, I interpreted initially in my first glance as asking which second-year player will have the biggest impact. And I thought the answer was kind of obvious. It's Brock Bowers, right? Because Brock Bowers is that dude. But that's not what Kevin is asking. Kevin is asking which player, which second-year player will make the biggest jump from year one to year two. So it might not be the, the biggest overall impact, but biggest improvement, I guess, from year one to year two. And there's a couple of names that come to mind for me here. I think you have to look at opportunity number one. And we talked about this with spring practice, the biggest opportunity, at least on defense, maybe the entire team is an inside linebacker because we have essentially no experience returning there. We have some guys that were around last year, but they didn't play any meaningful snaps. So I think if you look at the two guys who I would project right now, if I had to, as the starters at those two positions, that's probably a good place to start. So I guess I would start with Pop Dumas Johnson and Smile Mondin, who again, like I don't know, there's still fall camp to be played out, but right now if I had to predict, I know Mondin missed the entire spring with an injury, but if I had to predict, I think those two would be the starters if the first game was tomorrow. And if we're talking biggest jump from year one to year two, I think either one of those guys could qualify because they played some, but nothing meaningful. They played in garbage time. They played in mop-up duty. That's all they did. Now, if I had to pick between one of those two, it's interesting. I do think that Pop is more game-ready right now. However, I feel that Smile Mondin has a much higher long-term ceiling. We talked about this in spring practice a little bit, especially after G-Day. That, and it's a small sample size, so don't quote me on this. But based off what I've seen from Pop Dumas Johnson, I think he's more in the vein of a Monty Rice, which is not an insult whatsoever, as Monty was fantastic for us. Love me some Monty Rice. But he might be more of a two-down inside linebacker. Might come off the field on third down on those obvious passing situations. Whereas I think Mondin has more athleticism to where he might be a true three-down inside linebacker. So... From that standpoint, you would say Mondin would be the guy that makes the biggest jump. But I, you know, he missed the spring. We'll see how healthy he is in fall camp. I think in terms of who's more game ready, it's Pop. And we heard a lot of great things about him this spring as well. He's a leader on the defense. I think he's in fill in very nicely for some of those guys that were big time players versus a linebacker last year. So I, I don't know. You could go with either one of those guys. Another player that comes to mind for me here is A.D. Mitchell, but here's why I wouldn't say A.D. Mitchell would be the top of my list because A.D. played a lot last year. He played a really big role for us. I mean, through most of the year, he was our number one receiving option. I mean, we know Brock Bowers was the number one guy catching passes, but in terms of like receivers, it was A.D. Mitchell, for, you know, at least the second half of the year on. We saw him make a big play, a, a huge, I mean, that, that's an understatement, a massive program-changing play in the national championship game against Alabama making that, that big time catch over his shoulder. You know, if Keely Ringo didn't make that clinching pick six, it might be A.D. Mitchell, the guy that we talk about the way that we talk about Keely Ringo now. So people know who A.D. Mitchell is and he played really well for us last year. I do think he's in line for a big jump this year. I think he's gonna take the next step, become more of a household name nationally. But I mean, in terms of like biggest jump, he already played well last year. So I don't know if I would go with him there. Another option to think about here, I'm just going to throw this one out there. I'm really excited about him, is defensive lineman Tyrion Ingram Dawkins. I'll be honest, guys. I dropped the ball on this one. He was not really on my radar during the spring. We were doing all of our spring practice primers, our previews, all that stuff. We were wrapping, we were doing our weekly wrap-ups and recaps. I didn't mention Tyrion Ingram Dawkins one time. I don't think I did. Maybe once, maybe, but did not mention him much until G-Day. Because that dude came out there with the number one defense. And I thought he looked really good. Now, the reason he wasn't really my radar is because I thought he was too small. I know he's had some trouble keeping on the weight to play on the interior of the defensive line. So I'm like, well, I know we have some guys that are departing from the defensive line. We've got some, some holes to fill there. But I don't know if Dawkins, Ingram Dawkins is ready to be that guy because he needs to add on some weight. But I was not ready for how we were going to use him. 
he came out there primarily playing the five tech at G-Day. And then on obvious passing downs, he moved inside. And that's what has me excited about Ingram Dawkins is the versatility. He has high-level athleticism, which is why I loved him coming out of high school. He was just small coming out of high school for Demons of Lineman. But I think we're trying to use his skill sets to our advantage, and we're trying to find ways to use him because he is that athletic, and he has that versatility. And you can match him up and do different things in different packages, different downs and distances. And I do now fully expect him to be a big contributor for us this year. And that's another guy like the inside linebackers who just didn't really do much of anything. In fact, he reshered last year. He was a reshered freshman. So I think he might be the answer by the time this is all said and done, because I think he could be a big time player for us along the defensive line, especially as the season progresses. So that's another name there. I wouldn't completely ignore a name like David Daniel at safety, because we obviously have Lewis Seen moving on, but you, you do have Dan Jackson there who he's got to beat out. He might well beat Dan Jackson. Now, I mean, David's got more athleticism than Dan. I mean, that, that's fair to say, but Dan's got the experience and the trust of the coaches. But if he earns the starting job at safety, the answer might end up being a guy like David Daniel. So I think there's a couple options there. If I had to pick one, I don't know. Oh man, one. Uh, let's go, let, let's go pop. Let's go pop Demos Johnson. I just think he's the guy who was here for the spring. He was got a ton of reps. He's kind of I think he's going to try to take on a leadership role this year. I think the coaches are very high on him. I think he's more game ready than any of the other inside linebackers. So I'm going to go with Pop, but really the answer could be any of those guys. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. All right, guys, two questions left here. They're kind of related, at least in how I'm going to answer this next question. I think it'll lead us into our last question of the day. And this question, it's not a football question. This is a baseball question coming from Ryan. Thank you for this question, Ryan. I, and I know, guys, I did talk some baseball, kind of previewed the postseason a little bit on our last episode, but now we have some more information to operate off of because we did lose in the first round of the SEC tournament to Alabama 5-3. I told you guys, I told you. Don't get your hopes up. I wanted to believe. I really did, but didn't get my hopes up, and that proved to be prescient because, yeah, we lost. We lost. Just another loss. This back half of the SEC schedule has been tough for us. But Ryan asks, I know that you follow Georgia baseball closely. What do you make of the late season collapse? Is it time to move on from Scott Strickland? Okay, a uh, couple things here. So what do I make of the, of the late season collapse? And let's make no mistake about it. It was a collapse. That's not out of order here. I think that's the right terminology to use. It was an absolute collapse. We lost each of our last four series, including the final series of the year, a home series against Missouri, who, oh yeah, is the worst team in the SEC, did not even make the SEC tournament. And we had a, a potential hosting spot on the line if we just t- would have won that series. But no, we, we, we couldn't do that. We had a backloaded schedule. It was kind of a mirage early in the year where we were riding high. Everyone was talking about how it's, it's, it's a lock that Georgia's going to host a regional. And now we're just talking about, are we going to be a national seed, be a top eight seed, be able to host a super regional? And then the back part of the schedule happened. And I was kind of nervous when people were talking about that. I mean, I, I was saying that I felt like we were going to host a regional. I felt like a national seed was not going to happen because I looked at the schedule. I was like, oh, wow, we have at LSU, we have Vanderbilt, we have at Tennessee, the number one team in the country. That's that's, that's a pretty tough way to end the season. Then you have Missouri. You're like, oh, yeah, we can get get that series against Missouri, but then we didn't get that. So the schedule was backloaded. It was kind of a mirage early in the year. We lost each of our last four SEC series. We lost nine of our last 13 SEC games. And uh, how does that happen? Well, it's the lack of pitching depth. That that's ultimately what got us. The pitching depth just just it wasn't there, man. Like we had solid depth coming in the season, but we had so many injuries. And I'm not trying to make excuses. It's just facts, man. We had three starting pitchers go out for the year. 
All right, with Nolan Chris this past weekend being the most recent one of those. Each of our starting pitchers this season, you know, the, the three that went out for the year, Liam Sullivan, John Cannon, the two remaining healthy ones, they all missed at least a at least two weeks. At least two weeks. Sullivan missed a month. Uh, I think it was two starts, maybe three starts, at least two starts that Cannon missed. And then we had two, two of the other two go down like within the first couple of weeks of the of the season. And then we have these arms in the bullpen that have just been flat out bad, just terrible, like almost unwatchable all year long. A lot of these guys have actually regressed from last year. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that because we talked about that earlier in the week on our last episode, but the pitching depth finally wore down. I mean, honestly, early in the year, it was a mirage. I mean, I was sitting there asking myself at times, how are we winning these games? How are we winning these games? I don't know. We're winning them and that, that's great. Let's just, let's keep this rolling. I mean, in fact, I would say, you know, he, Ryan asked, is it time to move on from Scott Strickland? And we'll get to that in a second, but at least in this isolated year, now you can blame Strickland for the state of the bullpen and in the roster itself. That's fair. That's very fair. But in terms of just piecing things together and trying different options and, and different combinations, I thought Strickland did a good job this year. I mean, really, it's it's borderline miraculous that we are even going to make the NCAA tournament with all the injuries that we suffered in our starting rotation. It's been tough and how bad the bullpen's been. It's it's crazy to think that we are going to make the NCAA tournament. Now, right now we're projected as a two seed. I don't know if that's locked up, losing the first round of the SEC tournament to an 11 seed when you were the six seed. I don't I don't know if that's even locked up, but we're going to get in the tournament. It'll be a two or a three seed, and we'll probably get knocked out in the regional because we have no pitching depth. You know, that's, that's just, that's the fact right now. We just don't have the depth and it's a problem. Now, as for the second part of that question, this is a bigger question. Honestly, this might deserve its entire episode. I I don't know, but we'll try to address it a little bit here because Ryan asked about it. Is it time to move on from Scott Strickland? I don't think that we're going to move on from Scott Strickland after this season. We're going to get to the postseason after not making the postseason last year. I think he has has earned himself another year, or at least in the eyes of Josh Brooks, he's earned another year. However, I will say that his seat will be hot next year. If we don't bounce back and and get to another regional and, ho- and should be hosting a regional, like that's what Georgia should be doing in baseball, but we're not doing that consistently. I, I think he could be gone. If we miss the postseason next year, I think he, he certainly could be gone. But in terms of, is, do I think it's time to move on from him? I would say... No, not yet. Let's see what he can do. I, let's give him another year. Look, if, if we moved on from Strickland, I would. It's kind of like what I was, where I was with Tom Crean a couple years ago. Now at that time, it didn't get as, it had not gotten as bad as it eventually got, to where it's just obvious we had to move on. But it was kind of like my, my stance was, I'm kind of ambivalent. It's, I'm, I'm fine if we keep him for one more year and give him a, give him one more shot to get another recruiting class in here and get his guys in here. But I'm also fine if we fire him. I didn't feel strongly either way. And that's kind of where I am with Scott Strickland. Now, if it follows the path of Tom Crean, then eventually we need to get rid of him and it's become obvious. But I don't think Strickland's been terrible. He started off obviously bad and wasn't good for the first couple of years. Then we made two straight regionals, were national seeds, did not win either regional, did not make it to a super regional. What really killed Strickland, and it, I, I'm this is where I'm kind of torn because it'd be interesting to see what the opinion of Strickland would be if the 2020 season did not get canceled because of COVID. Because I think we had one of the best teams in college baseball the year. In fact, we were in the top two. We were in, getting ready to go into that weekend when the whole sporting world got shut down into a, I think it was a one-two matchup against Florida that that weekend when everything got shut down. And obviously that did not happen. But we have Emerson Hancock, Cole Wilcox. I mean, we had an awesome rotation. We had some good hitters in the lineup. I thought we, I'm not going to say we had the best team in college baseball, but we had one of them, man. Like we had a legitimate college world series contender. And you can't sit here and just say, well, we would have obviously gotten the college world series because it didn't happen. I I think we could have, but you don't know, but it's just a shame that season got canceled because we would have had a great season and that might've changed the perception of Scott Strickland. Unfortunately for him, unfortunately for us, unfortunately for everybody in the world, that season did not get played out. And I, I think that that should be considered here because he did build us up to that point and then those guys left and we're trying to build back up. My biggest issue with Scott Strickland is not a, a baseball thing. I mean, this guy knows baseball. He knows more baseball than I do. I'm not questioning that. My question for him, as it is with every coach who's not performing at a high level, it's typically recruiting. And that's where I'm at with Scott Strickland. I think recruiting is an issue. I know we had some injuries 
to our starting rotation this year. I get that, but we simply have no answers. Our bullpen is flat out terrible. We have some good solid hitters. The Tate brothers have been really great for us this year. Parks Harbor, after hitting like in the 220s for the first part of the year, has really come on. He's sitting about 300 right now. But we have not consistently been able to recruit great hitters. And that's been a concern. It's been a constant theme. You know, this this year has been different. But throughout his time here, our teams under Scott Strickland, our best teams under Strickland, have been led by stellar pitching and just good enough offense. This year, our offense has been the better part of the team, and the pitching has just fallen off the face of the earth for all the reasons that we mentioned. But recruiting in general, I think, has become an issue. He's had one top 10 class. He had a great class. I think it was 2016 was a top five class. But the past couple years have not been good. We're talking about in the 30s and 40s, guys. And I know with college baseball, it's a little bit different how you judge recruiting classes. It's not just who you get to commit. It's ultimately who you get to actually enroll at your university because these guys do have the option to go pro at a high school, unlike college football players. So you got to be careful on how you judge this. But still, the teams that we're competing against, the Tennessees, the Arkansas, the Ole Misses of the world, the Vanderbilt's of the world, they're consistently recruiting the top 10, the top 15, the floors of the world, top 10, top 15, LSU. All these programs that are top programs in the SEC, why are they top programs? Because they get the best players. They get better players. That's why are we better in college football than all these other teams in the SEC? Because we're getting better players. I've said it over and over and over again. I don't care what freaking sport you're talking about. It's about the players. Yes, coaching matters. Yes, development matters. All that does matter. It plays a role, but nothing matters more than having the players. And right now, we simply don't have enough of the top talent in the country. We don't. Our rivals, they do. That's a problem. So why is Georgia not recruiting at a higher level? That's the next question. Is it because of Scott Strickland? Is it a Scott Strickland thing? Or is it something bigger, more systemic within our program? And this is where it gets tough to answer because I don't think Scott Strickland is blameless here. I do think Scott Strickland is an old school coach and I think that's a problem. And I know some of you say, well, my coach is old school. Why is being an old school a problem? Maybe you're old school yourself. I get it, guys. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you. I'm just talking about recruiting the modern athlete out of high school. Being an old school, hard-ass disciplinarian like Scott Strickland is counterproductive. It just doesn't play in 2022 in this modern context. Now, you can bemoan that all you want. That's fine. You have a right to do that, but that's just the reality. Players want to play for players' coaches. We are in the era of player empowerment. You see in every sport, professional sports, college sports, player empowerment, especially now with the transfer portal. How do you recruit and then also retain those players and then get guys, attract players from the transfer portal? You have to have a coach that players can relate to that is, quote unquote, a player's coach. Now, I do think there's a, you know, that term's a misnomer. People think player's coach is the pushover. No, you can be a disciplinarian. Kirby is a player's coach, but Kirby can, like, he has a hard ass side to him, but he also has the other side where he can joke around the players and can relate to them and can talk to them on their level. Scott Strickland has not really shown the capacity to do that. And I think that's a problem. Let's look at Tennessee as a case study here. Tennessee has become the number one program in college baseball. They are fantastic this year and they're not going anywhere. Their best two pitchers are freshmen guys. They And those guys are studs. They are freaking studs. Our freshman pitcher that we got this year, Coleman Willis, who was a highly rated guy, I was excited to get him. I mean, he has not been good this year, man. He's lost confidence. He's plunking batters, can't throw strikes, can't get people out. I think he can recover and be a good player for us, but that's our top freshman pitcher is doing that, where like he can't get out of the first inning when we try to give him a start. Whereas Tennessee's top freshman pitchers are like in the ones and twos in their ERA. Like these guys are studs. So what's happening is they're getting better players. Why are they getting better players? It's not about facilities. We'll get to facilities in a second because that's a part of it, but that's not really why Tennessee is recruiting at a high level. And that's not why they have the best team in college baseball. Their baseball facility is not that great. I've been in Knoxville many times. I've run around their baseball stadium when I'm up there for football games. It's better than Foley, but so is every stadium. But it's not a great stadium. They don't have a ton of great baseball facilities. They don't have a great baseball tradition in Tennessee. What they have is Tony Vitalo, their new head coach they've had for a couple of years now, who's a young guy who is like the Kirby Smart of college baseball in terms of his commitment to recruiting, his willingness to grind when it comes to recruiting and the emphasis he places on that. That guy is on the road every single chance he gets, and he's building up a powerhouse in Knoxville, Tennessee as a baseball program. Who would have ever thought that? 
You just got to go get a guy that can recruit. Scott Strickland has not been able to consistently do that. So what I would say about Strickland is that he, we could certainly do worse, but we could also do better. We could also do better. If you get a guy like Tony Vitalo who can recruit and get the best players in here, things to turn around really fast. So part of this is, I think, a Strickland thing, but it's not just a Strickland thing. There are layers to this because the fact is he is fighting this recruiting game with one hand tied behind his back because our facilities are literally, guys, the worst in the SEC. I am fortunate. I get to travel to a lot of these college towns on football trips, and I see all their baseball stadiums. And I I have seen just about every... I haven't been to A&M, haven't been to Starkville, but I've seen Starkville. I've seen them play games there on TV, and it's palatial. It's fantastic. But all the ones that I've seen, like not only are we worse than all the stadiums that I've seen, which is about all of them. It's not even close. And it's not just the size. Size is one thing. But with, with Foley, it's really hard to add too much seating because of where it's located. It's kind of in a residential area there and there's just not a ton of space to add things. We could do we can make things better when you have know, premium seatings and do things like that. We could we could go down the first baseline, the third baseline. I think we could bring back Kudzu Hill, all that. We can we can definitely do some nice things and make it a better environment. But we're, what we really fall short on are the amenities. We don't have a pitching lab, guys. Our batting area, our, our batting cages, if you want to call them that, it's a joke. It's abysmal. Again, by far the worst in the SEC. We don't have a weight room there on site at the baseball stadium. We don't even have coaches' offices there on site at Foley Field. The coaches' offices, the baseball coaches' offices are in Stegman Coliseum. There's no nutrition site. There's nothing like that there on site for our players. They just simply don't have the amenities. And when you are a top-level recruit and you're being recruited by all these other baseball programs who actually invest in their baseball program and actually care and back that, back that up with, with money, with actually spending their financial resources on it, you're not going to be able to get those guys consistently. You're just not going to get the top guys. Carter Holton's a really good example. Carter Holton is a guy that we thought he was going to go pro, but he ended up not going pro. He went to Vanderbilt. He's from the state of Georgia. In fact, his uncle works on the Georgia beat, but he did not go to Georgia. He went to Vanderbilt. Why did he go to Vanderbilt? Because, well, Vanderbilt's program is better, but why is Vanderbilt's program better? Because they have better facilities, man. They invest. They invest. They care. We simply don't. So why would a top player like that who has options go to Georgia when you really, really, really are taking a step down in in terms of the amenities. You're not gonna be treated as well. It's that simple, you're just not. You don't have those things available to you. So that is also a major problem. And when I talk about facilities for baseball, it's not about making Foley feel bigger. It's about the amenities. That's what it comes down to. The pitching lab, the batting cages, coaches' offices, players' lounge, weight room, nutrition room, all that kind of stuff. That is what we have to invest in and we simply haven't done it. Now, here's one other thing I would say that makes it tough. And this is kind of, I guess, in somewhat defense of Scott Strickland. There's no other program in the SEC that has a professional baseball team in their backyard. The Braves don't really help matters. Now, I know you might be saying, well, what 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 do the Braves had to do with college baseball? Well, it takes eyes and interest away from Georgia baseball. Now, you can say, well, the Falcons are here. We still care about Georgia football. But college football is an institution that's deeply ingrained within the culture of the South in a way that college baseball is not. It's growing, but it certainly has not been ingrained in the culture. There are certain like, pockets, like LSU, it's a big deal there. In, the, in Mississippi, it's a big deal there. But like it, it's just not as ingrained across the SEC, really across the country, even though it's growing right now. But the Braves being here... It just takes eyeballs and support away from the Diamond Dogs because, you know, why would I go, if, if you live in the metro Atlanta area where a lot of the fans do, it's a highly populated area, why would you drive all the way to Athens to take in a baseball game when you can just go watch the Braves play? And so that's one of the reasons why our stadium isn't bigger because there hasn't really been a need to because our attendance hasn't been great. We did sell out season tickets this year. That's a big reason why I've never been feeling the urgency to expand fully. I mean, it'd be nice to have a little more seating if you know if we can start to fill that, but I don't know if we'll be able to fill it because the interest isn't really there. Maybe the interest will get there once we start to perform at a higher level on a more consistent basis, 
But I don't know if it'll ever reach the point of like where what you see at Ole Miss or Mississippi State or Arkansas or LSU, places like that, because the Braves are here and that draws attention away. And it's just it's just harder. It's just harder to recruit to that because you don't have you're not you're not the big show in town, right? Where you go to the Mississippi schools, LSU, Arkansas, like you're not the biggest show because football is still the biggest show, but you're closer to football than you are in Athens. And it's just not as big of a deal. It's not even like the second biggest show in town. So what I would say is like, let's look at it this way. Does anyone expect Vanderbilt football to recruit at a high level? Like seriously, do you? Of course not. You're not insane. No one expects that. Well, why is that? Why do we not expect that? Because Vanderbilt doesn't care. Their fans don't care. The administration doesn't care. They don't invest. Their facilities are atrocious by far. the worst in the SEC. Well, everything you say about Vanderbilt in football, you can pretty much apply the same logic to Georgia and baseball. I think more people care about Georgia baseball. We do have a nice fan base, but not near as many as care about other teams in the SEC. We don't invest in the program, just like Vanderbilt doesn't invest in their football program. I mean, Scott Strickland's getting paid in the bottom third of the league. I think he gets paid like $600,000, which is good money, but when the top guys in the league are getting paid, you know, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, I think AM hired Jim Schlossnagel, he's getting paid like 1.4 million. I think I'm pretty sure that Vitalo's getting paid like 1.3 million. So they're getting paid more than twice as much as our baseball coach. We are just simply not invested. So why would you expect us to recruit a high level? No one expects it from Vanderbilt because they're not invested. So why would you expect it from us? So if you want us to recruit a higher level, go out and get a coach that will. How do you do that? You pay him. You pony up. You be willing to do it. You invest in your facilities. So yeah, I mean, is it time for Scott Strickland to go? I, I don't, man. I, I could see his both ways. Again, I, I know I'm supposed to take a hard stand here and be, give you a hot take, but I'm kind of ambivalent. I, I don't think he's the best we can do. I think we could do worse. So what I would say is, you know, if you're asking that question, if the administration is asking that question. Just go ahead and pull the plug and go out and spend some money on somebody that's going to turn this program around. And, and, and look, and turning the program around, that's a bit strong. We've been good recently under Scott Strickland. We did not make the tournament last year, but we had made the tournament two straight years before the COVID year. It would have been three straight years. Last year was a step backwards. Sure, we're going to make the tournament this year. Not going to host, but we're going to make the tournament. So it's not like he's been bad, but again, I just think we can do better. And how do you do better? You go out and pay a coach who's going to recruit. And I think that's ultimately what I would prefer that we do. I think, I just think there's a cap on the program with Scott Strickland here. I think we can be good under Scott Strickland. I really do. I don't think, I, I don't think we're going to go back to being what we were when he first got here. We had losing records consistently. I think we'll consistently have winning records and be in contention to make the tournament. I just don't think we're going to be a major college World Series contender on a consistent basis, which is what I think we could be if we got the right coach and if we did invest in the program more than we have, which I think is coming. Josh Brooks is on a willingness to do that because we have talent in this state, guys. We have so much talent in this state, but too much of it is getting out of state. And I think we got to try to keep those guys in here by opening up the purse strings and um, just invest in the program with tangible physical resources and then also opening up the purse strings and getting a coach in here that will that will recruit at a higher level. That's, that's only where I would go. So, did I just talk myself in circles here? So I guess, yeah, if I had to pick, I think I'd move on from Scott Strickland because I just, I, I don't think the ceiling is there. I think we can get a guy in here that has that can give us a higher ceiling. That's kind of where I am. I guess like Mark Rick, right? Like when we fired Mark Rick, you fired him after a 10-win season. Had a good season. We weren't, we weren't playing terribly. We weren't bad. We were good. We just weren't great. We weren't elite. We weren't living up to our potential. And I think that's kind of where I see things with Scott Strickland and, uh, we made the move of Kirby. We saw that played out. There's no guarantees it'll play out like that in baseball, but I think you have to take your shot. And that leads us into our final question of the day. Talking about facilities, let's go to this question from Will, who says, the new football facility upgrades are amazing, and I believe they have been a big part of the success and elevation of the football program. But the facilities of other programs on campus are still behind the times. In your opinion, which facility upgrade should get priority as the next major project? All great points, Will. I agree in pretty much everything that you said there. I do agree with you that the facilities for football are fantastic, man. I mean, they are off the charts, whether it's the West End Zone project, whether it's the, the indoor practice facility, 
the butts mirror innovations, the weight room innovations, all that. I mean, it's top notch, dude. Like we have as good resources and, and facilities as anyone in the country right now. Fantastic stuff. And we're not going to stop anytime soon. Kirby will not let that happen. He will not rest on his laurels. He'll make sure that we are keeping up with this arms race. And that's going to continue to happen because we are invested in football. But we need to also start to invest more in some of our other programs. The popular one I hear, I mean, there's two things I hear. The first one is Foley Field, got to expand Foley or completely demolish it and build a new facility, a bigger one, better one somewhere else. Guys, that's not going to happen. We're not getting rid of Foley Field. We're not going to build a brand new baseball stadium. People love where it's located. It has that charming feel in it there. We just have to make the existing area better. Just just trust me on that. It's not moving. It's, it's just not going to move. And then you also hear about Stegman Coliseum, which I think is a very antiquated take. I think the people who are up in arms about Stegman who claim that we need a better basketball arena just honestly haven't been to Stegman anytime soon. Once upon a time, those claims were true and they had a strong legitimacy. Now, no way. Stegman is Stegman is a very, very nice basketball arena now. Is it the best in the country? No, of course not. But we've done a lot of renovations. You got the hanging scoreboard. We've redone the entire seating inside the arena, the concourses. We've got the murals, the signage. The exterior has been renovated. Stegman is not a problem. Stegman is very, very nice. And we, we have a very nice practice facility as well. It actually opened when I was in college. I think I went in there for graduation and kind of lined up there. And then we went in because I graduated mid-year December, graduated in three and a half years. So yeah, yeah, I think that's where I was. It was kind of new then. I was like, oh, this is really nice. And it's still really, really nice. It has its own weight room, courts, whole nine yards, great stuff. So I don't think that's as big of an issue. I do think we have some issues with baseball. We need to up, update those amenities. That would be close to the top of my list, as I laid out earlier. Um, for me, though, and this is going to happen, so I'm very excited about it. And those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, you know I'm a big Georgia tennis fan. And one of my deepest regrets as a Georgia fan is that we have lost the NCAA tennis tournament. We used to host that. We used to be here every year. And then it was here every other year. Then it was at least once every cycle, which is like a four-year cycle. And in this last cycle, it was taken from us. Why was it taken from us? Well, the last time we hosted the tournament was it 2017. I had bad weather. It was raining a lot, just like it was up in, in Champaign, Illinois, this past weekend for the NCAA tennis tournament. They were out, they were indoors most of the time up there. But that was a problem because our indoor facility is um Man, how do I how do I say this nicely? Why do I even need to be nice? I don't need to be nice. It's a disaster. It's terrible. It's old. It's disgusting. It's awful. Sight lines are bad. There's no scoring in there. There's no scoreboard. There's nothing. It's just and there's only four courts. So we had the entire NCAA tournament here, and we have four courts in our indoor course. And you can imagine the log jam that created trying to get things scheduled. We actually had to bus teams out to tech to play because it was we didn't have we didn't have the capacity. We simply denied the capacity. And uh, that's been a problem. And our coaches uh, have been pushing for a long time to get that taken care of. They've been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. Greg McGarity just waited and waited and waited. It was reactive to a fault. And he waited so long that the NCAA, the ITA said, nope, we're not going to have the tournament here anymore because we can't trust you guys to host it if you only have four indoor courts. So we've lost it. And now we're going to get it back. I think 2026 is when it comes back. But part of the deal to get it back was we had to have some things taken care of. Now, we've renovated the grandstand outdoors. It looks fantastic. Our outdoor facility is as good as there is in the country still today. It's amazing. It is the mecca of college tennis. But it's it's just, it embarrasses me, honestly. Like when we have opposing teams come into our indoor facility, it's like, oh my God. Like we, we call ourselves the mecca of college tennis, which I do still believe that we are. And then we have this indoor facility. And our coaches have known, they've been trying to get this updated for a while. And their efforts have finally paid off. And it is, to my understanding, it is next in line in terms of major upgrades. It is happening very, very soon. I think by tw- by the end of, by 2023, I believe it's supposed to be ready. Don't quote me on that, but I'm fairly certain that's the case. In fact, they might be starting construction here soon. I, I don't know that for a fact, but I, I believe 2023 is the date I was told was when it's going to be completed. And that's huge because I think that's we're, obviously that's a big reason why we're getting the NCAA tournament back and we need that back on the regular here in Athens because there's nothing like having the NCAA tennis tournament here in Athens. It is incredible. So that excites me. And as a guy who goes to all the matches, I'm very excited to actually sit in a new state-of-the-art facility and not the one that we've been in. So that's great. That is personally at the top of my list. I know not everyone cares as much about tennis as I do, but 
I'm excited about that, but that's going to be happening. So what needs to be done, done next? I think baseball. Yeah, I would go baseball. We've, we've got to put lipstick on that pig in a big way and just make it a more of a modern facility, 100%. I, I'm fine with Stegman. I don't think there needs to be much done with Stegman. We've done some good stuff with the golf facilities. I'm, I'm good with, with what we got done there. I would like to see a new indoor track probably out there off South Millage to where we can start to host some more of these events. That would be great. I think that's going to happen as well because eventually like football – is going to have to continue to expand. It's just going to have to happen. And where does football expand from here? Because you have the, you have Specktown tracks right there. I think what's ultimately going to end up having to happen is we just move the entire track facility down to South Millage, build them a nice new place, state of the art kind of thing, and then football can take over the current area where track is right now. Because it's basically encroached like literally right up as close as you could possibly get to the Specktown track. So. I know a lot of people that live around here in Athens don't love that because they like to use the track, but ultimately that's about the only direction football can go with how things are right now. So that's kind of where I would go. I would do the indoor facility first for tennis. It's going to happen. Then I would start addressing baseball in a major way and then start looking at moving track, probably the South Millage and give them a new facility there as well. But all right, guys, that officially does it for me today here on the Glory UGA podcast. Again, sorry Curtis could not be on this episode. That was supposed to happen, but he's off doing uh, fun things, having a good old fun time this Memorial Day, which I hope you guys do as well, even if you're not going to exotic locations like Curtis is. Have fun. Enjoy your family. Have a blast. Hopefully the weather will, uh, will work with us and not be terrible. I'm actually going out of town myself this weekend. I will be in Chicago, which is one of my favorite cities to go to. So I'll be having some fun myself, but wherever you are and whatever you're doing, enjoy yourself. Have a great weekend. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.